Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Lori Hav. He is the Managing Director of the Estonia e-Residency Program. Welcome to the show, Lori. Well, thank you, Mark, for having me. To start, can you describe the Estonian e-Residency Program? Sure, absolutely. Estonia was the first country to launch such a program. It was a bit more than six years ago. It's actually going to be seventh birthday by the end of the year. And basically, the, the essence of it is like, in this country, we have everything rather digitized. So we use digital signatures for a long, long, long time already, uh, like a proper ones, not the kind of very sign I leave you, <laughs> kind of a pencil mark on a on a tablet somewhere, but a proper digital signature. And all kinds of applications have sprung up from that, like e-voting and, and lots of other things. So six, seven years ago, we decided to start offering this opportunity or this possibility also to other nationals, not just Estonian citizens. So pretty much anywhere in the world you live with some limitations, which we can talk about later in terms of distribution, but literally anywhere you live, you could apply and become an e-citizen of Estonia and receive pretty much the same digital ID card as the citizens use, only that it does not have a picture and it's not a travel document for the e-residents. Cool. And so you started running this program within the last year, correct? Actually, I started in January, yeah. So it's my, like, I've been like seven months here. So pretty fresh from that perspective, but already getting the feel of it. Cool. And so what was your background before, I guess, taking over this program? And how did that lead you to to do that? Yeah, so for the last, oh, well, actually, I have to say 25 years almost, I've been in uh, in the tech and IT business in some shape or form. Back in 2003, I co-founded an e-commerce company right at the end of the dot-com bust. So it was like a great timing, but uh, we succeeded nonetheless. So um, I was a co-founder there and took it from like three, four people with a, with an idea to a 100-person company operating in 25 countries. Company still running well, but then I, I went on to uh, start other new things. So then, then I had like a five years at Moniz, which is a fintech startup. It's like HQ in London, but it actually has Estonian roots. So that's how I got invited invited in. And then there I was in a leadership role. And then we were really going from, we had like 20 something employees when I started. And then at the peak, it was like 420. So it was more like a scale up, scale up kind of experience and scale up kind of track there. And then after that, I've been doing a bit of software business uh, with a software development company. And from there, I was basically recruited to... Uh, come to my first ever public office or public position. So, so I've never, never tried my hand at anything related to government before. So in that sense, I suppose I'm, uh, I'm new to the government side of things, but uh, that's also what this program has, has been doing in the past, that mostly our staff is actually with very entrepreneurial and, and mostly also with startup backgrounds. How different does it feel from the startups and uh, software and technology that you worked for before? Oh, it's quite different in many ways. But then um, 
on some other ways also, I, I would basically say if you have worked for a really large multinational corporation, then working inside the government is not that different. So the level of procedures and, and procurement rules and whatnot is, is probably quite similar. That's maybe not so huge different from business world. But what is different, I suppose, is is the tempo of things happening, right? So because in a startup, normally when you do product development, you kind of have, if not full control, then at least you have a pretty good control over your product and you can sort of decide things quickly, be agile, fail fast, all these kind of principles and concepts. But with a government-run program, of course, there are different parts of government that do different processes and their processes are, let's say, they don't change so quickly and they're not so open to experiment on things. Well, especially when it comes to things like ID documents, right? So you perhaps also don't want your government to be experimenting things with ID documents, right? So you want this to be solid, right? So, but then with this kind of being solid also comes comes more waterfall type of thinking and just the tempo is different. So it takes some getting and getting used to and getting adjusted to. Yeah, I guess before we go into kind of the details of the e-residency program, how did Estonia, like they're basically one of the first countries that really adopted and fully embraced the internet. How did that happen? What were kind of the key factors that led to that? that kind of broad, I don't know, reorganization of, of government along those lines? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's, there's probably a number of factors, right? But as it usually tends to be. But go back, uh, we literally just had our restoration of Independence Day last week. So so we've been, a, again, an independent country for the last 30 years. But when we regained independence 30 years ago, we literally didn't have anything. So we had to build everything from scratch. And it's a good thing and a bad thing in the same time. It's a good thing because... Well, I mean, you get to build everything from scratch. You have no legacy, right? So, and I think as a bit of a side effect also, it really brought up like a number of generations of people who were really good at building things. It's like, if you need something, okay, let's build it. If you need that thing, let's build it. If you don't have a process, okay, let's invent one. So you kind of have this almost entrepreneurial mindset, but through very many segments of your populations who are very different parts of the country government business everybody basically had it to uh, had to kind of really start up a nation right and then um, once you get done with your basic building blocks then you kind of set your sights higher and you want to do better and bigger things so so i think that played a role there's also probably some historic shall we say accident or historic incident that happened basically was that back in the soviet union times there was a decision to place the institute of cybernetics in tallinn so in soviet union it was like there was a lot of like centers, like a center for one thing is placed in one place and the center for another thing is placed in another place. And then Institute of Cybernetics like that was decided to to put in Estonia. So when we hit the switch in, uh, in the early 90s, basically we did have quite a good cadre of IT and information technology, basically database specialists and, and whatnot back in the day. So I think that's contributed as well. And then there's a third part, which is maybe like a social thing is like, Estonians don't like to communicate with people that much. So we are made a bit better with computers. So literally, if you if you go to a bus here, it's like, and there's one person sitting in one corner of the bus, then the next person going in will go to the opposite corner. They're not so, not so sociable, perhaps. So, so I think this connecting through internet is kind of works together with social social setting in a way. Sure. But I mean, if we just look, right, of the Baltics, Lithuania... And Latvia mm-hmm. didn't really adopt the internet. And two, if we think about the early 90s, right, when Estonia, Estonia regained their independence, 
that was before, I mean, how many people were actually using like email on a daily basis in the early 90s? Might have been like in the US, like 20, 30% of the population wasn't like very high. And so to make those, I guess, like rapid adjustments, I kind of understand the like benefit from kind of, uh, I guess, the refounding or the re-independence, but it feels like there might be more there. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, very good question regarding Latvia and Lithuania, because obviously they're also small countries. They also regained independence at a similar time, and they also had to rebuild everything, right? So in that sense, like, we should be in the similar boat. And to some extent, we are, of course, as well. But Estonia has pulled away in certain sectors and in certain ways. A little bit going back, it's just like also, it's a question of what happened on the political level back in the day. So with Latvia and Lithuania, it was a bit more like, how shall we say this? So so let's say you have your communist country set up and you have your communist politicians and then you regain independence and then you have free elections. And it happened more in a way that Estonian political leaders at the time were a lot younger. And basically the old cadre of uh, Soviet style leaders was very quickly left behind. Right. So the kind of like that the turnover at the top and the turnover at the, at the political scene was was pretty quick and pretty complete. Whereas Latvia, Lithuania, they took a bit of a milder route and then a lot of these ex-leaders still stayed in power, changed their policies, of course, and all that, but still some of the mentality stayed along longer. That's what I kind of, from also personal experience, like I also worked very closely with Latvia, Lithuania, had a business in both of these countries, was was traveling between the three quite extensively in the early early 2000s. So, so there was like, a, I would say the political change because the people didn't change as much was not so complete is kind of my personal experience uh, with this. So, so I think with just younger generation, I think our prime minister at the time was the youngest prime minister in, in recorded history in Europe and all that. So, so they were ready to take more radical steps in uh, many policies. And of course it was more risky and, and it came with a lot of pain as well, but, but they were more willing to take more radical steps. So basically, I guess, in addition to kind of the, the re-independence, you also had a, kind of replacement of the previous political elite, where in a lot of post-Soviet countries, it was kind of the Soviet officials who ended up being the political elite in the newly independent countries, while you had a kind of younger generation that quickly brushed aside the former Soviet officials and that took control. And because partially because of their demographic, that they were younger, they were more willing to embrace new technologies. True. Yes. Yes. I definitely, that was a factor, I believe. I don't know how easy or hard it is to quantify that, but I'm just sort of basing this on my personal experience of those countries' politics back in the day. So how do we understand, I guess, you you mentioned previously e-voting as well as e-signatures and e-identification cards. So how how should we think about the, I guess, broader e-platform of the Estonian government? Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe going a little bit into the electronic or ID cards, basically. I think, again, there was like a, there was a pivotal moment because many European countries do have ID cards and some of them actually are quite similar. Like I think we copied ours pretty much from Finland, the technology stack back in the day. But there was one critical difference. And there's a question of, is it mandatory or not? Right? Because in, in most European countries, I mean, if, even if they do have an uh, ID card which has an electronic chip and, and you can do digital signature with it, then it's usually like an add-on or something that you can opt in for. And then uh, the situation here was that it was a sort of pretty brave decision at the time, but basically it was like, okay, let's make this mandatory that everybody must have an ID card. So a passport is optional. You can have a passport if you want to. If you don't travel that much, you might not take one out. 
But an ID card is a mandatory ID verification document. So it's kind of created this level of acceptance just by the force of law, basically, back in the day. So it kind of gave a very broad audience access to this critical piece of infrastructure where you could verify and sign documents and access systems digitally with a proof that was as good as in person or as strong as in person. So it upholds in every court, etc. So, so that gave this kind of platform the boost and then their applications started popping up. So, of course, in the beginning, you know, maybe not so many people were using digital signature, but then it became more of a norm. Then more and more government services became accessible with this card up to the point nowadays where you actually, in some government functions, you you can't even send in the paper documents. So, for example, if you're a contractor to the government or government-funded organization, you cannot send a paper invoice. It will not be accepted. It's not possible or quite a few years already. So it has to be electronically submitted and has to be. So it's things that, that and I think the early decision to, to make sure that it's a mandatory piece of equipment that everybody must have just created a broad audience. And I guess what, what are the mechanics of the e-identification card? Like, how do you get your identity verified? How is that I don't know, information protected? Oftentimes when I think about electronic stuff, the kind of question is like the grandmother test. Could my grandmother like use this? Would she lose the password? How do you actually correct for some of those mistakes? So what, what are the kind of practical mechanics of the e-identification? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, think, I think one thing that is pretty well developed today and is like a kind of support service for this product or for this function is, is pretty, pretty good. I mean, you can literally call them up with like crazy technical problems and the answer pretty quickly. So it's not like it's hard to get support if you run into difficulties. But of course, the grandmother test is definitely there because it's not only about the ID card, it's also about physical infrastructure. You need to have a card reader. This card reader needs to connect to your computer. Of course, nowadays, majority of people who use it actively use some electronic device rather than the actual ID card reader. So you can create an electronic signature also with your mobile phone. So the sort of original device is based on your ID card, but then you can use it on the mobile couple of different versions of this on the market, etc. But of course, yeah, in the in the beginning it wasn't so, right? In the beginning it was just a card and you need to have a card reader and, and that's it. And then there is the whole sort of pin codes infrastructure as you would have with your with your bank card. I don't know, people got along. So I think was it this year tax returns, I think like ninety something percent of that was done electronically. Everybody managed on the I voting, which well of course not everybody here, everybody don't have to do tax returns, right? If you don't have anything to claim back or if you don't have anything to pay extra, then you just don't need to file a tax report. But those who do, I mean, like literally every grandmother and everybody is doing it online. And also the I-voting, I believe, on the last elections, it was pretty close to 50%, if I'm not mistaken, who were participating uh, using the electronic means. And we have another set of elections for local government coming in October so. So this is expected, of course, partly due to COVID as well, is expected that even even a bigger proportion of the electorate would actually choose the electronic means. So, yeah, what can I say? <laughs> it has been done. And the grandmother test has passed. What exactly was driving it? I mean, in the end of the day, it's, I suppose it's coming also to the same time where people get used to bank cards and PIN codes. So in that sense, it's another kind of a card. It has a PIN code. Okay, it has two PIN codes, but so in that sense, I suppose people also got more used to things like that. So it wasn't wasn't a standalone experience, I suppose. And how are like the elections? Thinking in the U.S., right? The U.S. is still kind of freaked out from the Russian interference in the last election, mm-hmm. and at least 
what that seems to mean is, right, the Russians kind of buying ads and supporting different meme groups, not actual like election hacking to change results. And the U.S. has been resistant to putting a lot of even using kind of machines to do voting in person just because of the risk of hacking, the risk of losing a paper trail that allows you to recount. So how have you been able to, right, you're next door to Russia. (laughs) uh, One of the kind of common rationales for your entire kind of e-government program is to give a fail safe in case there is a physical invasion that you can kind of keep the government running online. So kind of you have this geographic proximity, this much greater immediate threat And yet, I mean, I haven't researched it in depth, but my impression is that your e-elections, e-voting is very secure. So like, how does that work in practice? Yes. And well, you mentioned we are next door to Russia and have a long history with our neighbor. Back in 2007, I think Estonia was the first country ever to become under, under a cyber attack from another nation state. So this did happen, actually, right? So it wasn't targeted at the election system, but it was a bit broader, right? So it was... Uh, during the time of some riots in in Tallinn. And then they were clearly supported by uh, this kind of cyber attacks against different government systems. That was a pretty good test exercise as well. And then the overall, the thinking thinking about the government infrastructure is such that it's quite distributed. So there are, on purpose, there are multiple different systems and, and, and everybody just has to make sure that their system is capable of talking to other systems through a common protocol called XROAD. But because the system is distributed, so there's like less threat of one place to take a hit and the whole whole thing's coming down as a, as a house of cards. So, so that definitely was a good sort of learning and training exercise and a sort of design blueprint for, for going forward. But with election system, it's like sort of a couple of things. So one thing is, of course, like when you're voting electronically, then you can change your vote pretty much as many times as you want. So for example, if somebody's putting pressure on you or somebody's persuading you into doing something, then you can you can always change your vote and the last one counts, right? And you can always go still on the on the voting day, you can go to the paper pallet and, and, and that one will then count. So so it's not like one directional. So you can you can recast your vote, just make sure that nobody's sort of coercing you into something. How have you dealt with uh, privacy issues? In the US, privacy tends to be, there's relatively strong kind of legal protections as well as, I guess, general cultural sense of the importance of privacy that prevents kind of a lot of data collection that otherwise might be beneficial. What are the cultural norms around privacy in Estonia? And then how do you how do you navigate those cultural norms in terms of creating all of these programs? Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. So we're part of European Union, so also GDPR. GDPR is, is is here, but also already before GDPR. So data privacy here, while we dealt with it, is also transparency. So, for example, there is one population registry, right? And that this population registry holds my data, for example. And then uh, if a government entity or person at any kind of government official position, if they want to query my data from the population registry, there is a log auditable log that they done this so they received my data and for what and for what purpose and i can log into the system and i can see who has accessed my data and why and in the early days when these things were implemented there were situations where people were found out basically snooping after your neighbor's relative or something like that and there were pretty public cases and people were fired for this and then it was very clear to everybody that actually the system works that not only is there a trail if somebody accesses your data, but also you can see the trail. And if it's unjustified, then you can definitely raise an issue from this and say, what's going on? Why are you 
what was the justified legal right for you to access my data? If there isn't one, then that's pretty serious consequences. So basically, the way you dealt with it is by yeah creating this, I don't know, e-trail such that anytime the data is accessed, it becomes... You can, yeah, call out that person. And if it is done illegally or legitimately, open an investigation and have some kind of legal sanction to to their actions. Exactly. How has Estonia managed to attract tech talent? So in the U.S., right, the technology sector pays much more than most government positions mm-hmm. are sometimes not viewed as that prestigious. Right. If you can go work as a, I don't know, VP in Google, you're probably making a million dollars a year versus like a, I don't know, in the US government, you might be making, you're, you're making less than $200,000 and you're in a giant kind of bureaucratic mess where you might not be as effective as you hope. So how has Estonia managed to kind of attract and, and retain tech talent to continue to operate and upgrade their, their systems? Mm-hmm. Overall, of course, this lack of tech talent is a global issue, right? So it's not limited to one, one country or one region. So let me just maybe talk about the business side of it first and then then offer some thoughts on the on the government position. So so on the business side, one thing we have well, I mean, of course, European Union, everybody can go and work wherever they want, right? So it's one thing. If a person from another European Union country uh, wants to pick up a position in Estonia, then they can freely do so. So that does help with movement of people inside the European Union bloc and um, is that Estonian is that for private companies or does that include like public government? Does the Estonian government regularly hire non-Estonians? We do, at least. <laughs> but uh, not, of course, in every position where you need to, when you need to know the local language, right? So then it becomes a bit difficult for. But there are certain positions where that's not required and you can do that. But what I was about to mention was that if you're running a startup company here, for example, and if you're recognized as a, as a startup entity, then... You can import talent from also non-European Union countries. Otherwise, it's quite a limited activity. Like the, the free movement of workforce from from non-EU countries is is quite cumbersome and and you know, lots of paperwork and quotas and things like that. Unless you are a startup, so if you consider the startup company, then you can bring in people to work for your tech positions as much as you can hire, basically. So that helps to alleviate the need a little bit. Then, of course, we have uh, neighboring countries like Russia, also Belarus, Ukraine, not too far, which are really big pools of talent compared to the size of Estonia. And we do have quite a sizable Russian-speaking minority. So it means like Estonian, Russian and English are quite freely used in daily daily life. I mean, you can find kindergartens, schools, whatnot in all of these three languages. So it also makes it easier for uh, talent from other countries to relocate to Estonia and they will they can make their life work here if they speak one of those three languages rather rather nicely. On the government side, what can I say? I mean, there is such a thing as patriotism as well. At least uh, that was one of the reasons why uh, why I decided to join this program is that I felt that, okay, here is something where I can contribute to my country using the skills and the business network and the, and the background knowledge that I have. So I, I bet that is part of it as well for the tech talent as well. And then quite a lot of the actual technical development work is, of course, done by third-party contractors through tenders. So it's it's not necessary that the, that all the tech talent works directly for a government office. They generally tend to work for bigger bigger system integrators or or software companies. So a lot of the the technology development is done via procurement because in the U.S. I tend to think that you American procurement rules are like pretty broken. <laughs> I have a story on that, but... <laughs> well, what's the story? If you have experience with American procurement rules and 
Estonia and how do they differ and how are kind of Estonia managed to keep their procurement rules effective? So the story I heard, and I don't know if it's a true story or if it's an anecdote, but anyway, so the story I heard was about the U.S. Army procurement. The U.S. Army was procuring biscuits for the soldiers with armed forces. Inside the procurement dossier, they had like an 80-page description of how the biscuits should be made. There was one thing missing. They didn't mention anywhere that the biscuits should taste good. <laughs> so I think that was like, that was kind of the description of uh, our government procurement systems, right? So that sometimes they kind of lose the focus. <laughs> put in the, the focus goes into the wrong way. I suppose Estonian procurement laws are probably not that different, at least on the European level. They're, they're quite harmonized. What is the level of sort of in-country procurement volume and what's the level of international volume. If you go above certain hundreds of thousands of euros, then it has to be an international tender throughout the EU, etc. So so these laws are quite harmonized on a sort of like a base level between EU countries. Of course, there are local uh, nuances and, and, and whatnot. So I don't know. I suppose it's a bit of an art as well, like how to run a tender in such a way that you actually get uh, high quality results from the other end. So it kind of takes... Uh, it takes a smart buyer as well to know the system, to know the rules and how to avoid the lowest bidder kind of phenomena when, when you end up with also the lowest quality. But definitely, it's, it's a challenge, I think, for every government because the public has a right to know how their money is spent and they want to be sure that there is no corruption and that brings along such a system, right? I'm not sure if, if private companies would use the exact same, same methods and they probably not always do. So... There is a thing, right, you have to have to think about if that's the best way of doing it. But I think you can manage still within that system. But I, I have to admit, of course, I'm not so familiar with American procurement laws. How are they different from the European ones, if at all? Yeah, I don't know if content is that different. There's two useful examples that I, I sometimes think about. One is the U.S. Army. I think they designed and started producing a mask for COVID. And that mm-hmm. mask was announced in like February of this year. So it basically took them like a year to design and like, I don't know, several million dollars to design a, a cloth mask to put on your mouth. Or it, it wasn't a medical grade mask. It was just like a basic cloth mask. And to me, this is kind of, they issued a press release. They were very proud of it. That to me is kind of silly. It's like, look, just go on Amazon and buy like a million masks and give one to like 2D to your troops, right? There's an easy solution. You don't need to go through this whole whole process. I'm not sure that's like procurement per se, but it is this kind of broad question of like, if you are a government agency, how do you accomplish this kind of task? And to what extent are you constrained? Perhaps they were legally required to create their own. Perhaps they just had a pot of money sitting around. So they figured, all right, let's spend it on this, right? It's it's difficult to know. The other example is Operation Warp Speed, which I think is largely responsible for, right, the extremely quick rollout of vaccines. What they did was they placed guaranteed buy orders among like the top 10, I forget the exact number, but the top 10 Mm -hmm. vaccines. Not all the vaccine companies were going to work, but right, all you need is a few of them to work, and that becomes a very worthwhile investment. So these companies could feel comfortable investing in the development and testing process for the vaccines, knowing that even if the vaccines were a failure, they would still have their buy orders guaranteed to cover their costs. But Operation Warp Speed was done effectively by short-circuiting all of the typical procurement rules, right? And the thinking was, this is a global vaccine, or this is a global public health emergency. Therefore, we're not going to take the kind of typical time, right? If you think for every extra day that American economy is shut down, American economy is what, like a $20 trillion economy. 
So each day is like, I don't know, $80 billion or something. So if you assume you're losing half of the economic activity every day, the economy is shut down, you're losing about $40 billion a day, right? Okay, you're losing $40 billion a day. Therefore, it's easily worthwhile to waste an extra $40 billion if you can just accelerate the vaccine pipeline by a day. And that was done by kind of operating outside the typical system. Obviously, that was an emergency, but it does demonstrate, I think, the constraints of some, I don't know, traditional procurement processes. Exactly. I mean, I heard heard an interesting story the other day from the time of first wave of COVID about one of the hospital departments, so basically one of the units at the hospital, they needed to send their staff to work from home because they were officials. They could they could work from home, but they didn't have laptop computers. And then, of course, there was no chance of doing any kind of procurement or, or all the kind of reserves they had. They were already used up. So, so there wasn't any kind of availability of, of getting quickly some kind of IT supply from their existing systems. And I was just listening to the story and I'm just thinking, you're a hospital. So this is a very serious life-threatening crisis. You need to you need to keep operational. Like the so one thing you can't shut down during this time is a hospital. So whatever is it, logistical unit or any other unit, and it needs to operate. And if what's standing between you and operation is uh, having a laptop computer, then why don't we just take a credit card, go to the nearest <laughs> electronic shop and buy a few, you know, <laughs> and yeah. get done with it. But that is not how how the thinking goes, unfortunately. But well, they manage pretty quickly in the end of the day. But but for me, it would have been like, why don't you just go and buy a few laptops for your staff of that unit and just keep operational? It's, it's a bigger problem not being operational than dealing with the procurement uh, regulation afterwards, right? So yeah, yeah. go figure. <laughs> Maybe we will learn from this in that sense as well. Like you can get to recognize that sometimes it's more important to act quickly and, and get the thing done and deal with the paperwork later. But of course, it's for people who have worked long time in these kind of systems and positions, it doesn't come as a, as a first option to their head. So in that sense, I think if countries and governments are able to rotate people more between the private sector and the government sectors, that would be a very beneficial thing because after 10 or 20 years in, in similar system, your thinking also becomes encapsulated by what is the boundaries of the system. And if you've seen different ways of working, then we'll be more flexible when you need to be flexible. Yeah. How has the e-governance program stayed, I guess, flexible and growing? So if we think about very successful tech companies in the U.S., after about 20 years, they typically become bureaucratic and sclerotic. So Google, for example, most of my friends in the technology industry kind of make fun of Google as you go into work, you work like two or three hours, you, I don't know, get a bunch of free food, play in the jungle gym, and you go home, there's a perception that like the Google culture, right, is not as very productive anymore. I suspect Facebook will start seeing this in the next kind of five years or so, right? Microsoft went through this period, but then it successfully reinvented themselves. So typically, I think, right, like by the time you get 20 people or 20 years, particularly if you're a very big system, where then the principal agent problems become quite challenging, then you often deal with kind of like, are you sure that everything is working as effectively as possible? Has this set in in the Estonia e-governance program? Or if so, like, what has that looked like? If not, has there been any intentional effort to make sure that this kind of bureaucratic sclerosis does not set in? Well, it is definitely a factor, right? And and I, I would be lying if I said that we don't have our sets of issues where things look exactly like like you mentioned, that some systems are getting getting quite old and, and maybe not maintained and then kept up to date. And and then you might not notice that because it's maybe some subsystem of a subsystem, which not a lot of people see. But then, then something changes like COVID, for example, and suddenly 
a million people will visit some site that is usually getting maybe a few thousand visitors and then it all comes crashing down right so so we've had these examples uh, definitely it's uh, it's a risk and i think it's, just, it's one thing is age but it's also the sort of the size of the organization that matters for these first agent problems that you mentioned that if the the bigger the organization gets the more political it gets right so if you go beyond 150 or a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand people then the more and more of your day will be spent on office politics or if it's not in the actual physical office then it's still internal things like right? so just sort of keeping the lights on starts to take more and more effort because you need to keep in mind all these different relations and hierarchies and then how things connect to each other and less less productive time is actually spent on things that matters to the end user or the end customer so I think one thing that helps with Estonia for that matter is, of course, the size of the country and also the size of these organizations that they they tend not to be a multi-thousand person organizations. They are a bit smaller. So, so I think that helps. But of course, the risk is there. So especially with the kind of things are the same and nothing changes for a while, then people do become complacent and, and these problems are there. Regarding the e-governance, though, I would have to say that we still new things are coming each year. And here also the the COVID pandemic was, for example, one accelerator, of course, like I suppose it was in other countries as well. But one thing that we launched last year and it was really properly accelerated through the COVID situation was a service called eNotary. So there are services or situations where you have to go to the notary to get a certain deed validated, like purchase of some property, uh, some real estate deals, or buying and selling of unlisted shares and a few other things as well. And the e-notary service was there and it has been planned for a while, but it was very limited to only a few number, like a very short short list of transactions. And then when COVID hit, then we were able to, I think it was like within four months, actually extend the e-notary services to like pretty much almost everything that somebody needs to do without having to go to a notary physically using their ID card. So so there there are still examples every year uh, where new things are popping up and are being actually developed in a more agile way than not so like a very long winding waterfall type of a process. But the threat is definitely there that the older the systems get, the more used to people get to them, then and then there is not enough innovation happening anymore. So so it is it is a it is a discussion ongoing on how to keep it front and center. Cool. So why should I sign up for the e-residency program? That's a good question. Why should you? <laughs> depends on depends on your circumstance, right? So broadly speaking, there's like two buckets of use cases, I suppose. Like one situation is people who have some connection to Estonia anyways, right? But they are not Estonians, they're not citizens, but they have some connection. Maybe they work for an Estonian company or they own shares in an Estonian startup or board member of a Estonian company or they own real estate here or any kind of connection that you have to this country. It's just then ease of doing business and then getting things done if you are an e-resident because you can use exactly the same infrastructure and exactly the same services as the people who are residents would use. So it's like one bucket of things. Let's say you have some connection to the country through employment, investment, other type of activity that requires you sometimes to sign some documents or deal with property or shares and, and things like that. I don't know, shareholder meeting minutes, whatnot. Then there's another side where basically... People would come and use e-residency specifically to use the Estonian business environment, to use the Estonian legal environment to run a business, to, to start the company, but do that remotely. And there, there's like twofold. So one thing is we do have a, a rather appealing tax system as well, where corporate income tax, you don't have to pay corporate income tax on withhold earnings. 
So basically, let's say if you have a small business, you're starting, you're investing in it. If it turns profit, this profit is not taxed unless you take it out, right? So for a starting business, that's quite an appealing scenario because you can keep the money turning and compounding in the business until one day you say, okay, now I need to pay some dividends. And then, then those dividends are taxed with a flat rate of 20%, which is in itself is not like super generous. There are countries which have lower tax rates and there are countries which have higher ones. This is sort of like, let's say, middle of the road. But what makes it appealing is that if you don't take the money out, if you keep investing in the business, then you don't have to pay corporate income tax on this. So, so this is like tax incentive, I suppose. And the other part is, of course, the lower level of bureaucratic hurdles that you have. So I was looking at a paying taxes survey or paying taxes index where they look at like how long does it take for an SME-sized company of, I think it was like 50 persons, like how many hours a year does it take for such a company to file taxes to deal with that? Let's say in a country like France, this is 320 hours, and in a country like Estonia, this is 50. So there's quite a big difference because there is like, well, of course, things are done electronically, but also there is less bureaucracy here than in many other jurisdictions. So it's, it's of course, the tax regime is quite favorable, but it's also the, the fact that you can do business with lower lower cost because the, the admin overhead is just less due to less bureaucracy and also due to the fact that you can get everything and anything done regardless of where you are. So you don't need to wait for some government office to be open because you can file all your documents you need electronically online at any time you please and and things like that. So this is this is quite appealing to businesses or entrepreneurs who have any sort of cross-border virtual type of business where maybe you're not dealing so much with one physical location. I don't know, you're you're a consultant, you're selling your services, you're selling your software. It doesn't matter physically where you are. It's not the place that is important. It's like what you do that's important. And for those kind of businesses, of course, and they have wider choice of legal environments where they could decide to incorporate. They could look at Estonia, they could look at another country and kind of weigh the pros and cons and costs and benefits and then make up their mind. So recently, what's been like last three years, the rate of, of new businesses generated in Estonia, about 20% of them have been actually e-resident companies. So it's not an insignificant part of the Estonian sort of business environment that is that is now being generated and turned around by e-resident companies who start things from abroad. Do you know what the total market cap of those e-residency companies are? <laughs> no. <laughs> that I do not know. <laughs> that I do not know. We are looking at, of course, like how things go. So how many of them become active and then how many of them start paying taxes at some point in some shape or form. So, you know, this takes time, right? So when a company starts, as you know, I mean, the, the failure rate of early stage companies is very high. Lots of people start lots of companies and less than 20% of them see their fifth birthday, right? But those who do, then, I mean, of course, then they are more stable. And that's where the sort of the tax benefit and economic benefit from the country comes from. So it's a, it's a rather long game in that in some ways, but it's also a platform game where we can say, okay, so if a thousand companies start, but some really good ones from them become super successful, then the platform really pays off. Are these companies, are they mostly selling to Estonians or are they kind of selling to the EU and they figure Estonia is the easiest place to start a business in the EU? So let's just start in Estonia. Yeah, most of them would not be selling to the Estonian market, right? So the Estonian market is small and in itself is not so is not so appealing. So yeah, it's, it's more about selling to other markets, perhaps. Uh, well, sometimes it's EU directed, right? So if you're a non-EU entity or non-EU entrepreneur and you want to do some business in some EU country, then you're looking at which one is the best to incorporate in. But it's also inside the EU actually as well. I think our top six countries 
for business owners, it's actually like 50-50 between European Union countries like Spain and then Germany and Italy and France as well, and also non-EU countries. So it's actually has, has an appeal for inside the EU as well as outside. What does success look like in five years? Huh. <laughs> That's a good question, right? Well, if you look at from the owner's perspective, so I'm trying to sort of think of a few different angles how to how to look at it. So if you look at the owner's perspective for e-residency program, basically funded by the government, so what's a good outcome for the government is, of course, if, if the tax returns generated by this program are bigger than the cost into this program. So it has a positive, positive ROI, and it does. So, I mean, success is then purely based on, like, how big is the tax income generated by these companies that were created because of e-residency. There's also another view, is maybe a softer view, is like we're looking at, what, today we're looking at 84,000 e-residents, right? So if these e-residents would be a city, it would be the third biggest city in Estonia. So in a way, you can also think of e-residents as part of being Estonian diaspora, like a digital diaspora almost. And of course, the value of having a big diaspora that you have a piece of their mind, you have a piece of their heart, like what is exactly that value? Sometimes maybe not so quantifiable in economic terms. Like what's the value of having 200,000 people strong diaspora versus having 1 million strong diaspora? But these are the these are the sort of the soft value sides where I believe that this is one way for a small country to have more friends in the in the world. And in times like these, you need friends. Is most of the benefit from the program is anticipated to be future tax revenue? Do people have to pay to get e-residency? Does that cover the kind of administrative costs? It does. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so basically to apply for the e-residency costs about 100 to 120 euros, depends on the jurisdiction a little bit and the logistical cost and overheads. But yeah, the, the purpose of this fee is basically just to cover the cost of going through the basic KYC checks that the police and border guard are doing, reviewing the application, printing the document, shipping it, handing it out, all these things. So, so this is like just to break even. It's not the purpose or the, sort of the revenue side of the program is not the applications. They're just a break-even break product, basically. Yeah, the, the longer-term benefit is increased economic activity in Estonia, outside Estonia, and then, of course, in the end result, then one day direct tax benefits to the country from those businesses that survived and thrived. Have you been integrating blockchain technology at all into either the e-residency program or the e-governance program, or are there plans to do so? Actually, the um, the public key infrastructure that we use is pretty much a blockchain-based technology. And it's been in use since, what is it, 2000, 2008, something like that. So it's quite a well, that's, long term. Well, that's the same time as, what, Bitcoin, I think. They, I think the there was paper. like a six months difference between the white paper and, and when Estonia like put first blockchain-based system yes. in production. So, yeah, they were very close to each other, actually, yes. So it's been a, been a long while now. And there's like, of course, some industry in terms of uh, companies that are spreading this technology and then are helping to other countries and other companies to implement this technology that have sprung from here. And of course, it helps if your home country is <laughs> actively using it, right? So it's uh, easier to expand into other markets. Cool. I think I'm out of questions. What questions did I not ask you that you would like to answer? <laughs> okay. It's an interesting one. Yeah, I suppose how the e-residency and, and these kind of ideas, how do they relate to what Chartered Cities is, program is about? Maybe it would be one question in your view. And then perhaps also I would have asked myself, how are other countries doing? Is anyone following the footsteps with the similar programs? Sure. So yeah, how, what are <laughs> other countries doing? How are they doing copying you? And what are they? are they doing anything better than you guys? 
Yes. So I think over the years, a number of countries have been giving signs that they are thinking about these kind of programs and they want to bring something forward. It has taken a bit of time, which is perhaps not surprising given the topics that we discussed earlier. Now, Lithuania has launched an e-residency program in June. Also, Ukraine has passed laws and legal legal works to create their own program. And also, Portugal has been talking about it, and, and they have plans for it for a while already. So at least, yeah, let's say Europe and immediate neighbors, there's like three or four. And there's kind of two things, of course. It helps in one way, as I'm looking at this, that if there are people following and to some extent maybe copying the ideas, that it also helps to validate that your idea was not crazy and then, then other people are, are doing the same path. And also, of course, the same complacency issue that we talked about earlier. So if there is competition, then people tend to sharpen up their game. So in that sense, I'm looking forward to other countries doing it because we might and we definitely will be able to to get some new ideas or get the fresh angle on, on some topics from these countries as well and see how they run this program. Cool. And I believe that Prospera hired a lot of the e-residency team Prospera, the kind of charter city, charter town development in Roatan, Honduras. I heard a lot of the e-residency team. What can we, I guess, expect from that? And I don't know how much you know about Prospera, but like if you could hypothesize on what it would be like for a charter city to adopt e-governance technology. I think for a charter city, I suppose it's probably the only way, right? What other options are there? Practically, residency programs. <laughs> yeah, I do know about Prospera, and I'm of course hoping they will succeed in implementing what they're out there to do. Uh, I'm not so sure if the main issue there is technological, though. It, it might be more of a let's say if we think of the classical sort of product or distribution type of a problem for a startup. Then I'm thinking that maybe the issue or the kind of the bigger obstacle for for these kind of setups would be distribution and getting enough people excited and, and kind of seeing this as a legitimate and viable option. I think maybe the technology part might be actually the easier problem to solve. But then again, I'm not so deeply into that to be sure, but it's it, at least that's my current understanding and opinion. A little bit maybe also related to the sort of success of digitalization in Estonia as well as like the technology is, is easy to copy, right? It's the institutions that are difficult. And that's something, of course, that the chartered cities are trying to address, right? That recreating the institutions. And that's, I think it's in the right path. Just maybe to bring an example, let's say, if we think of, let's say, many of our systems are based on having one population registry, which other agencies then query if they're as need and, and only for the data they do need. But then if you go to a country like Germany, which is a federal state, then suddenly you have probably, I don't know, 20 or 30 population registries and then maybe also 30 or 40 different tax authorities etc so it just it just gets very complicated to agree on anything because the institutions are so distributed and so so varied in that sense that's something maybe chartered cities of course trying to address and recreate also the institutions part of it yeah i think that's right i think the I guess challenge is as to what a new residency program would look like in a charter city, at least my understanding of how you explain the value of the Estonia e-residency program is access to a very easy to do environment to do business in that is embedded within the broader EU ecosystem. I guess here's one question. If Estonia was not an EU member, how would that affect the number of people doing the e-residency program? Yeah, that's a good question, right? We've been we've been a member for quite a while, so perhaps not so easy to think of it from this perspective. But I would, yeah, definitely would it would have some impact, right? Because especially for the non-EU founders and entrepreneurs, 
having a beachhead type of operation inside European Union is, is what they want. And then, of course, that wouldn't be there. But since we do have quite a number of EU founders and EU residents as well, then, you know, it would definitely be seriously impacted, I would imagine, but it would not be zero, yeah. I think. Even the EU founders, though, presumably they're locating in Estonia because it's easier to start a business, register a business in Estonia than France, right? And so they're looking for that you know, regulatory arbitrage to an extent. And if Estonia mm-hmm. was not part of the EU, then they would they would either register in France or maybe they say, I don't know, like Germany's easier or Spain's easier. I don't know. But right, like there, if Estonia was not an EU member, then that might impact their decision to register just because Estonia, the market is so small that most people aren't trying to, to launch potentially. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Definitely being part of the EU block is a strong point of the value prop. And I think especially if you also add here financial services and banking as well, then having these set up inside the EU versus third country, I mean, definitely also has an impact on the business outlook and the trust that your customers would place on, on that business. So. So it's probably, yeah, it's probably quite a quite a big part of the of the value prop, definitely as well. Yeah. So that means that a charter city that's thinking about an e-residency mm. program needs a either a kind of the value prop needs to be here is a larger market or here is some something that you can do in this country, right? It's not just the business environment. The business environment helps, but like nobody cares about Antarctica having a good business environment because it's really cold there and nobody wants to live there. So you need an easy business environment, but you also then need some type of, like, I don't know, comparative advantage, whether it's access to the larger market in the EU, whether it's the allowance of some new type of technology that otherwise might be very heavily regulated. But you need the kind of combination of things to to really solidify the value of a kind of e-residency program. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, that you need a combination of factors, right, that, that would, would make the proposal attractive. And if it's just one thing without the other, then just... Like a chair with one one leg doesn't stand up. Need at least three. <laughs> so well, I think that's all my questions. So thanks, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast.